welcome to the Recovery Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Miller. I'm a stroke survivor and grateful recovering alcoholic. In loving memory of a friend that I found out passed yesterday, I want to talk about something that um, that I don't talk about much, if any. Um, and I think it's important that I include this as part of my recovery story. <clears throat> and that is about my experience with prescription drugs. So, uh, so the title of this podcast episode is Drugs and Honesty. And my experience with prescription drugs and um, my Mm, we'll call it a uh, dangerous relationship with them, started in college. Um, I had undergone two surgeries when I was in college, and they were pretty much back-to-back, and I was prescribed Percocet. So back then, I, I already was drinking like an alcoholic. I had been since I was in high school. And uh, so when I had these surgeries and I was prescribed Percocet, you know, of course the bottle says don't take with alcohol. Do I pay attention to the bottle? No. So um, I, I just went about drinking like I always did, which back then was... I think it was about a six pack a night. It might have been a little more. Um, And this was just on a school night. So that was that was just my leisurely drinking. And yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a six pack a night. And so I would take so one of my surgeries, I was prescribed two Percocets, like every four hours, I was in a lot of pain. Um, and this other surgery was like one Percocet every six hours or something like that, four to six hours. So um, I got addicted. Um, and I remember being in my dorm room and having drank like my, my beers for the day. I don't know. Anyway, I was drinking beer and I was taking Percocets. And I remember laying down to go to bed and it was a game to me. I remember feeling really good and closing my eyes and thinking, I wonder where my arms are, meaning are they by my side or are they over my head? Because I couldn't feel my arms. So I would play this game while I fell asleep every night, um, taking my Percocets. And when I was finally done with the Percocets. Um, I didn't, I didn't try to find more or anything like that. I, I didn't venture off into, uh, some sort of new drug addiction, but I remember feeling very much having a relationship, you know, with these, with these pills. So, as I got um, more and more into drinking, um, drinking, I guess, more often, meaning drinking in the middle of the day, like after I graduated from college and 
when I had gotten divorced, I had moved back into the house that, um, that we raised the kids in. So the kids and I moved back into the house and I remember feeling like, okay, like I've got my shit together now. I was still drinking, but I thought I've got a handle on everything that was causing me anxiety, you know, and, and depression. And fr- so I thought I, I can stop my anxiety medication now, anxiety and depression medication now. Um, I think we're all aware that you should not stop your prescription medication without consulting with your doctor. I did not do that. Um, so I decided just to stop it on my own. And as much as I felt like the anxiety medication wasn't working, um, to an extent, like I still had panic attacks and stuff when I was taking it, when I was still in the depths of dealing with my divorce and, and all of these challenges that I had, when those challenges were gone, I felt like I was better. Well, I wasn't better. The medication was, was taking the edge off of all of these symptoms that I had. So when I stopped taking the medication, slowly over the following two weeks, slowly I started having these symptoms come back. And the symptoms are, I talked about them recently when I had a hard time getting my doctor to refill my prescription. They're like, um, like my, I feel like my nerves are jumping under my skin and like my hands feel all weird. And I start having panic attacks. Like I start having rapid heartbeat. I start getting, uh, having dizzy spells, dizzy spells different than the dizzy spells I have now. It's a little different, but there was one day that I re- I was working at home and I was sitting in my office. I was the only one home, just me and the two dogs. And I spun my chair around. It was like, it was totally quiet in the house. But to me, it was like really loud. And I, I have always had a, had a challenge describing this, but my thoughts were so loud in my head. Um, I wasn't hearing voices or anything. I just, everything was really loud and overwhelming. And I spun my chair around and I yelled, I can't take it anymore. And I realized at that point I needed to quickly, immediately go back on my medication. And that's the only time I've ever tried to stop that on my own. Um, later, as I was reaching my low in my drinking, I did start taking larger dangerous dosages of my prescription medication. Um, I had medication for panic attacks, um, anxiety, and depression. Um, in addition to things like, um, uh, like I'm trying to think, NyQuil, that kind of stuff that has alcohol in it. 
I would take that stuff. Like I would take as much as I could on top of the just ungodly amounts of alcohol I was drinking um, because I wanted to get, I feel like I was seeking a higher high. That's what I was doing. Like I'm not, I'm not messed up enough. My mind has not been altered enough. I need to keep trying to, I was chasing a high that I was never going to get. Um, but there was, there's a part of me today that feels like I was seeking a lower low. Like I've talked about how depression feeds on itself and I feel like looking back at those times that I was trying to feel also as miserable as I possibly could because I've I've mentioned before I didn't feel like I deserved to be happy. I felt like I deserved uh, everything bad that ever happened to me. That was my destiny. And so I tried to continue to just put substances in my body uh, that made me feel bad and keep substances out of my body that made me feel good, like food and water. Um, I was punishing myself. I was self-medicating myself and I was... Uh, uh, sorry, I, I said I was self-medicating myself. Um, sorry, that made me stop in my tracks. I was self-medicating and I was also um, punishing, you know, self-punishing. So um, after I got sober, after I went to detox, I was given a medication for craving, to stop craving. I think there's lots of different medications out there for this. Um, so I, I, I didn't look it up today to go see what, which one I took. I, oh, I think it was naltrexone. It just hit me. I think it was called naltrexone. And so I was taking this for months. I mean, I think at least six months. <coughs> Excuse me. I think I was taking for at least six months and it was expensive. Um, even insurance pays for part of it, but it was still expensive. Like for me at that time when I was, I had just become a single parent and, uh, I was not addressing, of course, the, uh, all the other ways I could save money, you know, cutting costs and stuff. Instead, I always seem to go for the, well, I can do without this. I can do without that. It was like, how can I continue to, to just keep myself right on the edge of being healthy, you know? So anyway, again, well, I just, I stand corrected. I said, that's the last time that I had ever stopped a prescription on my own. That's not true. I, you know, sometimes I don't, don't think, things through. <laughs> Naltrexone is another one that I stopped taking on my own. So luckily, and I did it, my, my recollection of it is that I did it because it was too expensive. That's why I did it. I really didn't think that, you know, I was thinking, well, 
I hope it doesn't get my give me my cravings back, but we'll see. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. What ended up happening is I started craving sugar, um, enormous amounts of sugar. I just could not get enough candy. And I felt like, okay, this is fine. This is fine. I can just eat tons of candy. Well, I ended up later having to wean myself off of candy, which was much more acceptable of a process to me than weaning myself off of, well, not weaning myself off of, but quitting alcohol or quitting smoking. Um, So it was more manageable, but it was still very unpleasant to wean myself off of all that candy. So fast forward a little bit. Um, During my sobriety, I had to go see a periodontist. So one of my problems when I was in active alcoholic was I didn't take care of my teeth either. So um, I ended up having to go to a periodontist because my gums were in very, very bad shape. So I needed to go get underneath my gums cleaned. And they use this like water, you know, water laser almost that that gets under your gums and cleats them. Well, when I went in for my appointment, they told me they were going to give me laughing gas or they asked me, they told me that's the normal procedure is to give me laughing gas. And my immediate reaction to that is, oh, I found a loophole to my alcoholism. You know, that this is it. This is the loophole I've been looking for. I get to get high on laughing gas and meet my reaction because the program, my sobriety program has taught me to correlate those, those thoughts to action. And, um, and I'm really grateful that I had practiced my program, um, up until that point, because what I did was I asked my dentist, uh, to leave the room so that I could call my sponsor. So, um, from the dentist chair, I called my sponsor and she answered and, I told her what was going on and I said, I'm afraid to get laughing gas because I'm afraid it's going to set me off um, down a bad path. And she did not tell me what to do. Her response was that I already know what I need to do. You know, this reaction that I had, this action that I took to call my sponsor because I was feeling uneasy and I felt like this was a dangerous thing for me to do. That was my answer. I already had it. So when the dentist came back in, I told them that I would like an alternative to laughing gas and I ended up getting my mouth numbed. So, um, so I avoided the situation that do I regret getting the laughing gas? You know, if I'm being honest with myself and that's what this, this episode is about. Yes. I wish that I got to feel it. Um, you know, and only an addict and alcoholic can go years after a situation like that and feel something like I would, that was my one chance, you know, um, it's very unhealthy. So it reaffirms that I am very much an alcoholic and I have to stay on my toes at all times. So in my current situation where I'm dealing with chronic headaches and migraines, 
Um, ever since I had my stroke in June of 2021, I have been fighting this desire to take some sort of drug that is going to make my headaches go away. But it's not, it, that's not what I want. You know, um, in all honesty, what I want is something that's going to not only take my headaches away, but it's going to take all everything away. Uh, you know, and, and I don't mean my life. I mean, just feel good. I just want to feel good. You know, that's, that's the thought that I, that I fight. Um, I wouldn't say that I fight that on a daily basis, but it is something that, that crosses my mind. Um, more often than it than it should than is that is healthy for me what's healthy is that it doesn't cross my mind at all but I'm an alcoholic and um and so these are natural thoughts for me and what matters is is what I do with those do I call my sponsor do I share about it in meetings and the answer is yes. I try to talk about it as much as possible. I have not, I've mentioned it on the podcast, but I haven't talked about it enough. And that's why I want to talk about it today. Because even pain medication, even pain medication that is prescribed to us is dangerous when, when we're an alcoholic or an addict. And so why is it dangerous uh, for me as an alcoholic to think like this? It's dangerous because if I were to take any mind-altering drug or prescription that is addictive, um, it would be easier for me to make a bad decision to pick up a drink. And that is why I am so cognizant of these thoughts because as soon as I change my mindset, um, alter my mind with any kind of drug, I have more of a chance of picking up a drink and I cannot and refuse to allow that possibility to increase. I refuse to. Um, and so I, you know, my doctor, my neurologist is working with me to continue to prescribe different medications that are not addictive to try to fight this migraine that I have and uh, the chronic headaches. So we're at the point where I'm taking a migraine injection. I thought that it was working um, until over time it's been starting to, my migraines and headaches are starting to come back and it's daily. So um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm a little deflated and frustrated that, that it is starting to come back. And whenever it starts coming back, these ideas, these unhealthy ideas come back as well. Um, but I continue to, to try to talk about them. I tell all of my doctors 
that I'm an alcoholic. All of them. I even told my optometrist that I'm an alcoholic. I told my vision therapist that I'm an alcoholic. I tell my dentists, everybody, everybody that cares for this body of mine has to know that I'm an alcoholic. Um, I'm prone to addiction. I'm always looking for loopholes, yet I'm terrified that I'm going to find one. Um, just like when I was sitting in the periodontist chair and, and I panicked, you know, it was panic. I thought the feeling of excitement about having laughing gas freaked me out because I hadn't felt that feeling in a, in a long time since I walked in and, um, and got a box of wine for the last time. And the only unavoidable loophole that I have found is seconds before, in, before going under for a colonoscopy. And I can't avoid that. I do. I will not be awake for a colonoscopy. I can tell you that. Um, and, and so that's your, that's your loophole. And, and I think that that's easy enough to avoid wanting a colonoscopy so that I have a second of a high. So, um, I kind of laugh at that, but when, when these unhealthy ideas enter my mind, I fast forward the tape of my life. What will this action do to my future self? I've talked about recently, I have an episode on feeding my future self. Um, I even had a friend ask me, I've had lots of people, um, you know, having every good intention, reaching out to me and giving me suggestions about different uh, procedures, medications, therapy, and all this stuff for these chronic headaches and migraines that I have. I had a friend ask me, with all good intention, is medical marijuana something that you can take um, as an alcoholic? I did respond no. Um, and I explained why that's something that I can't do because it's a mind altering drug and it would lead me to a drink. I am certain that it would lead me to a drink. My sobriety program also is built on honesty. And if I were to relapse, it would start with a lie. I'm sure of that as well. It would start with a lie. It would start with a lie to myself where I'm finding an excuse. I'm finding a loophole, a reason why it's okay to alter my mind. And then it would continue into a lie to my loved ones, uh, my boyfriend, my kids. And these excuses would build on themselves. Um, one thing that we say in the program is that our relapse can start months before we actually pick up a drink. And it starts with our minds, you know, the very thing I talk about this, it's amazing. The very thing that can kill me is the thing that's trying to convince me that it's okay for me to drink. And it used to win, you know, it's my mind fighting against itself. It's, it's just 
amazing that as many people get sober as they do because it's an internal battle every day. Um, so it would start with a lie. It would start with excuses. It would lead into smoke and mirrors that I create to protect my lies and my relapse from others. I'm protecting the, the potential for a relapse. I'm creating a way for me to do it. I'm, I'm creating the stories. I'm creating somebody in my meeting this morning said, uh, I'm creating a dark corner where I can go to for my, when I, when I want to lie, when it's time for me to relapse. And, and I love that, that analogy because when I went to detox for the first time and I got out and I spent about two months sober and then I started drinking again, a dark corner literally is where I drank. I would stand in my closet with the lights off and the lights in my bedroom off and I would leave the lights on in the hallway so that I could see shadows coming if somebody was looking for me. Um, so I was literally... Uh, hiding in dark corners. And I would create the dark corners to protect myself from, uh, from my, from others, uh, finding out that I was, that I was relapsing so that nobody could see the truth. So to save my life, literally to save my life, and I'm reminded of this yesterday as I found out about um, a very close friend of mine that passed away. That and I and I don't know yet uh, for sure how he passed, but I know that this is a topic that him and I talked about, and so that's why I want to share it. Um, not because I'm presuming how he died. It's it's that I want to talk about the importance of this topic. And so to save my life, I have to be honest. I have to be open and I have to talk. When all of my instincts tell me to shut down, lie and hide, hide in, in dark corners and this is why I do this podcast. This is why. Because it's been less than two years and I've lost another loved one. I don't know why, but I'm just going to let it remind me of the importance of me talking about what's going on inside of me. So thanks for listening to the Recovery Daily Podcast. To connect with me online, find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, or visit recoverydailypodcast.com. The best way that you can help is to share, like, follow, and comment. 
If this topic resonated with you, share it with a loved one. Thanks, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.